If you travel, you know how to really go off the grid. Like no cell service in your room, off the grid. You know which remote retreats have the best herbal baths, sound baths, and ice baths. Because when you set up your out-of-office, you mean it. Because when you're the escape artist, vacation is all about resting, meditating, drinking water, and minding your own businessing. The Delta Sky Miles Platinum American Express card. If you travel, you know. Learn more at go.amex slash you know. It's time to breathe easier this allergy season with Breathe Right Nasal Strips. With instant nasal congestion relief for up to 12 hours, you can spend your time on your terms, not on your noses. Stuffy nose from outdoor allergens? No problem. We got you. Allergy season just turned into stripping season. Instant relief from nasal congestion anytime, anywhere. Need more convincing? Click the banner below and get a free sample. Breathe right. Get your strip on. Use as directed. The fear of a loved one's death is a profound existential anxiety. Whether you've got a parent in poor health or a spouse that's in good health, but you can't stop imagining them dying anyway, the worry can be paralyzing. Welcome back to Savvy Psychologist. I'm your host, Dr. Jade Wu. Every week, I'll help you meet life's challenges with evidence-based research, a sympathetic ear, and zero judgment. Today, we break down why our brains worry about loved ones dying and tips for getting out of these mental loops so we can actually enjoy life with our loved ones instead. Now, before we get to today's main topic, a quick tease for a bonus segment at the end of the episode, we're back with a short Q&A with Dr. Chloe Carmichael, author of the new book, Nervous Energy, Harness the Power of Your Anxiety. Today's Q&A is about sitting with our emotions. What does this mean? Is this helpful for people who have lots of nervous energy? You won't want to miss Dr. Carmichael's explanation. Recently, a listener wrote to me and asked about how to cope with being afraid of a loved one dying. This immediately brought me back to one memorable patient I saw years ago as part of my training at a cancer center. She was a 30-something entrepreneur, wife, and mother to three young kids. She was at the center because her husband had just been diagnosed with brain cancer. I tried to put myself in her shoes and just could not fathom how she continued to function so well. She was still an attentive mother, she continued to run her business, and she did all of this while knowing her husband's grim prognosis, which was a 50% chance of surviving the next two years. Don't get me wrong. She did worry about her husband very much and about her family's future, but we worked on finding meaning and balance in a way that honored her very valid fears while also allowing her to live her life. And I learned a lot through working with her. So what did this brave woman do to quell her profound anxiety? And how can we calm our own worries that a loved one will someday die? Or how do we cope if we know that day may well be on the horizon sooner rather than later? Let's get very concrete about this topic because spinning around in the what-ifs can paralyze anyone with just existential fear. So to start with, let's make an important distinction. There are two major types of anxiety about a loved one's death. One, when a loved one has a severe illness or is at high risk of dying and you are anxious about their impending death. Or two, 
when your loved ones are not particularly at risk for dying, but you can't stop worrying about them dying anyway. These two types of anxiety are very different and need different types of responses. So scenario one, worrying when a loved one is at a higher than usual risk of dying. Now, this is a common experience for anyone, but this has been a tragically even more prevalent than usual experience because in the past year, nearly 3 million people have lost their lives to COVID-19. And millions of people also have illnesses like cancer or heart disease that could become fatal. So if you have a loved one who's at high risk, facing serious illness, or nearing the natural end of their life, you may be worried about the day when they will die. It's one thing to rationally understand that death is inevitable and that things may be out of your control, but it's quite another to feel truly at peace with this knowledge. Don't expect yourself to be perfectly rational and poised. After all, you may be facing the impending loss of someone you love. Allow yourself to feel anxiety and grief. And at the same time, for both your sake and the sake of your loved one, be wary of natural anxiety and grief turning into an unhelpful state of paralysis or preoccupation. It may be time to take some steps if you find yourself unable to manage the basics in life, unable to engage in proper self-care, or so preoccupied with thoughts about your loved one's death that you can't enjoy your time with them now. So let's take a look at three things you can do to help yourself. Tip number one is to climb down from the what-if tree and to live in the moment instead. So whatever your loved one's prognosis, the best way to make the most of your time together is to live in the moment. Slow down with the to-do lists, get rid of distractions, and most importantly, get down from the what-if tree. The what-if tree has a sturdy trunk with strong roots at the bottom. Now that's the present moment. And as you climb up the what-if tree, with each branching what-if scenario, the branches get thinner and your footing gets shakier. At some point, it's simply not useful to think that far ahead. You're going to be teetering on the very tippy tops of the tree, having no footing whatsoever. Of course, you may have practical matters at hand. Decisions need to be made about medical procedures and contingency plans need to be made, but keep these to the essentials. Set aside limited decision-making time rather than stewing on important decisions whenever they enter your consciousness. Think of these decisions as tasks to do rather than a new anxiety-fueled way of living your entire mental life. Whenever it's not your specified decision-making time, try to set those thoughts gently aside. Tether yourself instead back to the present moment, knowing that you'll refocus on your decisions later. Tip number two is to not shut down conversations about death. Now I get it. We hate talking about death. We especially hate talking about it when we're afraid that its shadow may be creeping closer to someone we love. Sometimes, well-meaning family members shut down conversations about their loved one's death. We say things like, oh, mom, don't talk like that. You're going to beat this. Or, no, I won't even entertain the thought of you dying because it's not going to happen. It may feel encouraging and helpful to say, you've got to beat this or you're going to beat this. But denial and dismissal 
actually prevents your loved one from expressing their very real feelings, making them feel alone when they need closeness the most. They may be feeling afraid, sad, angry, accepting, or any range of emotions in between, and more than ever, they need you to hear and understand this. A recent study asked palliative care nurses about the most common reflections they hear from the dying. They found that people experienced a huge range of emotions, from fear to gratefulness to acceptance to worry. They also faced a variety of concerns, ranging from legacy to finances to family relationships. Many dying patients want to recount their experiences and express their concerns. We should not assume that we know how our loved ones feel about the possibility of impending death, and we certainly shouldn't prevent them from expressing those feelings at a profound moment in their life. And you can also tell them how you feel, even if it's not, quote, positive vibes only. Avoiding difficult emotions in yourself does not take the burden away from your loved one. They know you're not okay. Of course they do but they'd rather hear it from you than be kept at a distance. And the third tip and last tip for this type of anxiety about a loved one's death is to prioritize self-care. If you're close with someone, they want you to be well. The same palliative care nurses study also found another major theme. Those who are dying are more concerned about their family's well-being than their own death. So for this reason, even if not for any other, we should take good care of ourselves. And self-care does not necessarily mean buying products or services advertised as self-care. It's more about attending to our minds and bodies' basic needs. Nutrition, activity, rest, routine, social support, and doing things that are meaningful to you. Think of it not only as an important investment, in your own ability to cope with uncertainty and the possibility of loss, but also as an investment in your loved one's peace of mind. So we've already talked about what to do when our loved one may be truly at higher risk for dying or they have a poor prognosis. But let's talk about what happens if we just worry about someone in perfect health And there's not any particular reason to think that they should be dying anytime soon, but we just can't get that thought out of our head. In fact, have you ever worried about someone's death so intensely that by the time they walked in the door and explained that they were late due to traffic, you'd worked yourself up into a panic? I've done this myself many times, actually, and the worry took a particular uptick in frequency in the first few months after having a baby. I worried that my husband would die in a car crash during his five-minute drive to the grocery store every time he went. So, it is not crazy to be worried about your perfectly healthy partner or loved one. We may be more prone to this type of worry if we've experienced an unexpected loss in the past, or we're feeling particularly stressed or vulnerable right now. In my case, I was experiencing common postpartum anxiety fueled by major changes in my life, both hormonal and otherwise. Another common reason for preoccupation with a loved one's unlikely death is generalized anxiety disorder, or GAD for short. People with this anxiety disorder spend a lot of time worrying about bad things happening 
to the point where it interferes with their functioning or prevents them from enjoying life and causes physical symptoms even. But no matter the source of your worry, there are always ways to reduce the hold it has on your life. And the first way to do that is to understand that worry is your brain's way of trying to feel safe and in control. I remember very clearly a patient asked me once, worrying feels terrible. Why does my brain do it? Do I get a sick pleasure from worrying? Now, this was a very good question. Often, people with GAD, or generalized anxiety disorder, believe, whether consciously or not, that worrying helps prevent bad things from happening. If I turn this worst-case scenario over and over in my mind enough times, surely I can head it off, right? And when we worry, we also feel like we're doing something proactive, which conveniently distracts us from our feelings of fear or sadness. But of course, the idea that worry somehow helps or prevents catastrophe is an illusion. Worrying doesn't change situations. It just keeps our negative feelings at a constant, medium simmer. We may also worry as a way of purposely keeping ourselves in a negative mental state. That way, if the worst really does happen, we're not taken off guard and we don't have far to fall. This is, of course, another illusion that the brain cooks up for us. If our loved one really does die unexpectedly, we'll of course be no less devastated if we've imagined this hypothetical death many times before. Our brains are particularly prone to excessive worry when we feel a lack of control. Like when there's a once-in-a-lifetime pandemic loose in the world, for example. Or having experienced trauma, being sensitive to your body's fight-or-flight response, or being generally stressed can also put you into this state too. Now the first step is to simply understand that there is a good scientific reason for why your brain comes up with persistent worries. It's trying to help you feel safe. You're not getting a sick pleasure from imagining your loved one's death, but you are getting some temporary illusion of control which keeps you spinning for more. Begin to break that spin by reminding yourself to try to not indulge in the act of worrying. Now, that might sound easier said than done, and it is. So tip number two is here to help you with that, which is to understand that thoughts are just stories that your brain tells you. So now that you understand why your brain cooks up persistent worries, you can start to let them go. And with letting them go, the key is to realize that thoughts are just stories. And sometimes they're even less than stories. It's just bits and pieces of monologue that your brain has stuck together. It's up to you to decide if these pieces represent something true or meaningful or helpful. Let's try something. Think to yourself, I'm a purple elephant. Take your time. Okay, now check a mirror if you have one handy. Did thinking I'm a purple elephant make that thought come true? Did thinking it somehow make the phrase meaningful or useful? I'm willing to bet that you're not gazing at the reflection of a purple elephant right now. Now, think of the stories your brain tells you, like, she's never late, so she must have been in a car crash, or this could be the very last time I ever see him. These thoughts are exactly equivalent to thinking, I'm a purple elephant. They are currently not true. They do not mean anything. They're not actionable. 
and they're certainly not helping you. Now, it's okay if these thoughts pop into your head sometimes. You can't control that, and our brains just throw things at the wall to see if they stick. It's okay to even turn them over a couple of times to see if they're meaningful. But if you find yourself not being able to let go of these thoughts after repeatedly thinking them, especially if they're causing you distress or interfering with your functioning, your life, consider whether you're reading too much into them. Ask yourself, are these thoughts based on facts I have right now? Or are they just thoughts, just bits and pieces of monologue that my brain has cooked up? Now, not reading into your repeated thoughts about your loved one's death is all well and good, but in that moment, after telling yourself to let go of the thought, what do you fill your mental space with instead? I bet you know from experience that it's very easy to slip right back into that worried thoughts rabbit hole unless you're actively engaged in something else. And that's the next tip, which is to ground yourself in the present moment. Go ahead and ground yourself in the present moment with some engaging activity. You can certainly watch some TV or play a game to distract yourself. But I challenge you to try for something more than simple distraction. Practice shifting your attention to what's going on in the here and now, in your body, in your surroundings. Name what you can see, hear, feel, and smell in this moment. Follow the rhythm of your breath for a few minutes. Little mini exercises like this can strengthen your mindfulness muscles, making it easier to prevent yourself from going up the what-if tree or going down the worries rabbit hole next time. And of course, last but not least, when you're worried about a loved one's death, be patient and kind to yourself. All the strategies we talked about today are much easier said than done. We already covered prioritizing self-care before, but it bears repeating that we really must show ourselves patience and kindness. Whether you're about to lose someone you love, coping with an uncertain prognosis, or you simply can't let go of your fear of a healthy loved one's death, it's important to remember that you're experiencing deep existential anxiety. Here's one trick for figuring out how to be kind to yourself which is actually pretty hard to do. And this trick is to ask yourself, what would I do for a scared five-year-old who's worried that his parent is going to die? The approach is the same, whether it's true that he's about to lose a parent to illness or he just had a nightmare about it. Would you tell this child to just toughen up or just be rational? No, you'd give him a hug, tell him you understand how scary his worries must feel, and then help him to understand the true situation, being as gentle but factual as possible. Sometimes that might include reminding him that nightmares, like worries, are just stories the brain makes up. And then you'd help him eat breakfast, get ready for school, and continue doing the things he likes to do. When worries threaten to overwhelm you, treat yourself with that same kind of compassion. And now for the promised bonus Q&A with Dr. Chloe Carmichael, author of the new book, Nervous Energy. I asked her this this week. Often, we therapists work with clients to help them better understand their emotions and have a better relationship with them. What does it mean to sit with your emotions? And in your experience, is this helpful for people with 
nervous energy? Sitting with your emotions is something a lot of therapists are into, not all, but a lot. And I have to admit, I have mixed feelings about it. In some cases, it can be helpful, but oftentimes the best thing we can do with emotions is to use them as a springboard for self-care. For example, if you're single and constantly yearning for a relationship and experiencing feelings of loneliness, I wouldn't want you to just sit with that yearning and loneliness. I would want you to recognize Recognize that nervous energy as a signal guiding you to seek a relationship and to see how we could channel that into some good self-care behaviors. Now, there are times when we have to learn to accept certain emotions, and maybe if a therapist is talking about that, that can be helpful. But I do think many times taking our emotions as signals for self-care behaviors is oftentimes the healthiest way to think about them. Thank you so much, Dr. Chloe. Nervous Energy is out now and available wherever books are sold. Thanks so much for listening to The Savvy Psychologist. I hope that you are living a healthy and happy 2021. Let's continue the conversation on social media. Tell me about your anxieties. Tell me how you cope. You can find me on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at QDT Savvy Psych, also at Jade Wu PhD. We can also keep in touch through the Savvy Psychologist newsletter, which brings you news and psychology tips straight to your inbox. Savvy Psychologist is audio engineered by Steve Rickyberg and edited by Karen Hertzberg. As always, it's strictly for informational purposes and does not substitute for mental health care from a licensed professional. Thanks again for joining me, and I'll see you next week for a happier, healthier mind. Are you tired of the constant battle with anxiety and panic? I've got a podcast that I think you'll love. It's called The Anxiety Coaches Podcast, where the host, Gina, gives you your weekly dose of tranquility and inspiration. Two new episodes drop weekly, packed with practical tips and lifestyle changes to help you calm that racing heart and bring peace back into your life. So if you're ready to bid farewell to sleepless nights and constant worry, tune into the Anxiety Coaches podcast and embark on a journey towards lasting calmness and a life free from anxiety's grip. Remember, it's not just a podcast, it's a lifeline. Join Gina on the Anxiety Coaches podcast and let her soothing words be the balm your nervous system needs. Listen in and start your path to healing today. The Anxiety Coaches Podcast.com because healing begins the first time you listen.